Bloodbath and Beyond, episode 13. I'm Casey Mitchum. And I'm Burton Cody. And death and honor are thought to be the same, but today we have learned that sometimes they are not, because we're talking about 1992's Last of the Mohicans. It's action and horror, it's horror and action, it's Bert and Casey, it's Casey and Bert. All right, this movie is about, uh, well, it's set against the backdrop of the French and Indian War in 1757 in colonial America, uh, and it's from the point upstate, of... Up, upstate New York in particular, Yeah, in right? upstate New York. It's about how uh, some British troops asked for the help of local militiamen, and among them are a few uh, wandering and remaining, one of the, some of the remaining few Mohican warriors... Um, we follow the trio of Chingachgook, Hawkeye, and his brother Uncas. Hawkeye, of course, is the white adopted son, who is, an, who is orphaned, uh, I guess, when he's like one or two years old, and found by Chingachgook, reared, and he's a Mohican himself. He, at least he considers himself to be. And the movie is about how these three men sort of escort two women and a British officer back to a base in order to deliver uh, an important message from another general and how a love story develops between one of the women and Hawkeye and the also, and also the revenge set out by the villainous Magua, a Huron warrior chief set out in revenge for the two girls' father. The general, General Monroe is his name. Mm-hmm. And that's the basic story because... We're just uh, we're just gonna jump right into this one because this is based on a massive novel, a two volume novel if I'm not mistaken, by uh, James Fenimore Cooper yes. who also wrote several other stories starring this uh, this Hawkeye character. He called them his leather stocking tales. Yeah, Natty Bumpo. At least he's called in the in the book. Here his name is uh, I believe Nathaniel Poe. And that was a change they made because they felt like audiences would laugh when they said Natty Bumpo. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess more just, or less not. Yeah. So, Casey, what did you think of the picture? Just a general impression. Well, I, you know, actually, I was going to lead off because um, a running theme on this show so far has been that I am the uh, the bloodbath and beyond and talk too much about books podcast side of this oh. of our equation. So, I, I just wanted to lead off by saying that what I know of Jameson Moore Cooper is that he is Mark Twain's least favorite writer. Um, <laughs> he is a man that Twain wrote several uh, venomous essays against, yeah. saying that his his word choice was always wrong, uh, his, his way of writing and use of dialect were always wrong. Um, and, and particularly, he said about him that Fenimore Cooper is the kind of author that if the plot necessitated that someone step on a twig to, to you know to alert other people to their presence the protagonist would always find that twig no matter how difficult that might prove to be in its surroundings <laughs> so is he the king of just improbable stories i you know it's <laughs> i'm not really sure i just it seems like twain really really hated the guy and just felt like he wrote really simplistic stories just kind of silly and, in a way, Saturday morning matinee, which is very much the feel of this picture. Yes. 
Oh yeah, no, this is a this is very much a matinee story uh, or matinee uh, condensing yeah. of the plot. Well, dear listeners, last week I did say that this is Michael Mann's best film, mm-hmm. and this was my opinion of when I was about. I can't remember the last time I saw this movie. It's been about 10 years. I was in high school. And I let you get away with it because I hadn't seen this movie yet. <laughs> but I mean, watching it again, I still like the movie. Um, but problems have become very apparent to me. And his best work you can find in movies like Heat and The Insider. Those are, I think, his two best pictures. Also, uh, I believe you know he did the original Hannibal Lecter movie. Yes, he did. Uh, Manhunter. Uh, Manhunter, which is a movie I, uh, kind of backwards, actually. I didn't think too much of it first because I was comparing it to the wonderful Jonathan Demme Silence of the Lambs Hannibal Lecter movie. Uh, but I didn't quite give Michael Mann credit for some of the great work he did on Manhunter, and it's definitely apparent. And and Mann's very much a director who hasn't really had a great career after the 90s i mean uh, his last good movie was collateral and even that movie had some severe third act problems um and his, and his last movie period was public enemies which was terrible uh his last two movies were uh well actually collateral was shot on digital but there there was miami vice and public enemies and they were both abysmal failures in my opinion I mean, Miami Vice was so bad, I, it's hard to put into words. Um, Public Enemies was, te- it was um, just from a technical point of view, it was the most underexposed movie. And when I say underexposed, I mean that the lighting was so bad you can't see anything. The camera couldn't pick anything up. All you see are just muzzle flashes everywhere, every five and minutes. From the- and from a story point of view, uh, you know, you're you're telling the story of two legendary gangsters, and it couldn't be presented more dryly or more boringly. No, so. <laughs> it's and so many other synonyms can describe. It was, uh, it was, it was a bland, bland experience. And we're, and we're gonna write it off that way because that because unlike other epi- other things that we'll say will be future episodes, we will never talk about this movie again. <laughs> Oh yeah, Public Enemies. No, God, no. I'm... We'll we'll never do an episode on that one. So <laughs> I I would love to do Michael Mann in the future for you know like oh, yeah. I said his best movie, uh, Heat, and I would love to talk about um, Thief, which is and I would kind of the protoplasm uh, Heat, and I would love to do Manhunter if we ever did the uh, Hannibal Lecter retrospective. I so. think that's in the pipeline down mm-hmm. the lo- down the line, you know. So not right that's away, right. but it it it's gonna happen. Yeah, give us time. Yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, you you mentioned that you have some problems already with this movie. Would you care to care to elaborate on the, at least one of those for now? The biggest glaring problem of the movie, and this may be the fault of Fox, Tom Rothman, the the notorious micromanaging uh, studio head, micromanaging an infamous micromanaging director, Michael Mann, uh, who. Forced him to cut down his three-hour vision of this movie down to under two hours. And it shows in the love story between Hawkeye and Cora Monroe. Mm-hmm. A, a love story that was not in the book. No, no. And it, it, because it's there, it feels unnecessary. However, mm-hmm. 
the love story, and, th- and this is this is a thing that's prevalent in so many Michael Mann movies, even his good ones. He's a director who does, he'll think up great scenes, great inappropriate scenes, I'll say, because I think the love scene inspired one of the strongest scenes in the movie, and it's like the swelling of the music thing where Hawkeye and Korra meet up and sort of, uh, uh, it's like a, it's like the war for it. And she's taking care of injured troops, and the music just builds and builds and builds, and it's wonderful, it's beautiful. But it doesn't have much else setting it up, so it's not the payoff you'd want. And it doesn't quite go anywhere, and their love story is just initiated with a couple of winks and smiles, which, had it been left to that, it would have been stronger to just been even more uh, just insinuated. Uh, let me say, I mean, that... I didn't buy their love story, and that's that's a big problem here. Um, I mean, and a big part of that is that there was re- there wasn't really any setup for them to have fallen in love so quickly. Uh, the the other colonials, because you know this, you know, th- there's amidst all the conflict with the Native American characters, there you know we're we're seeing the French side and the British side, and there's really and like th- there are Native Americans on each side of the conflict, and there are colonials, and all the colonials decide to abandon their post, and and uh, Hawkeye, who uh, I don't think we've mentioned, is played by Daniel Day Lewis. Oh, we haven't mentioned that. It's very we haven't important. mentioned. It's it's very important. Uh, so again, <laughs> I'm going to come back to this later. But imagine Daniel Day Lewis <laughs> surrounded by a bunch of Native American characters, you know, going, "I'm just like you guys." Um, but you know, he, he's a really good actor generally. Uh, but they <laughs> they have this scene. Like he's he has known her for you know in movie term and like movie time he's known her for twenty minutes. <laughs> um, well, I mean, and, there have been other movies where love stories have developed from people looking at each other. Sure. And but, I, but here it doesn't feel as strong. And it's not organic. Um, yeah. Because because they're talking about their reasons for leaving, and he's like, and they're asking him about his reason for leaving. It's like, let me guess, she wears a long skirt, and she's and he's like, yeah. That's the reason I'm staying in this conflict, you know. Like, but like so, I like I said earlier, uh, that's a great. I love his line. He's like, "She's a whole lot better looking than you, fellas." I mean, I know if it's it's also part of Daniel Day Lewis's great delivery. He's a great actor. He's Daniel oh, yeah. Day Lewis. Um, I I feel like the movie a lot of times is it's like it's a little more concerned with showing how handsome he is. Mm. He's a handsome dude. Then. Oh, yeah. You know, kind of showing off um, Uncas and Chingachgook. Mm-hmm. I think are very important characters. And um, oh, and I I I almost wish there was more of them. There, uh, well, actually, this is the the version that is on Netflix is the director's definitive version, which is a combination of the uh, uh, director's cut, which I do not like. I, the theatrical cut is the preferred one, but Uncas and has I think a few more lines. In the uh, theatrical cut, uh, while here they're missing, and it makes them even more of like a wallflower to the scenario. And speaking of which, that leads me to my other big problem with the film. Okay. And that's how it's Hawkeye's, Uncas's, and Chingash Cook's stake in the matter. Mm-hmm. There doesn't seem to be a big reason why they're into it. They're just kind of doing their own thing at the beginning of the movie, hunting a deer. It's a really great scene like I said, and then there's the war going on in the background, and then they just kind of get into it, and 
the the movie pretty early on there's an ambush with uh, the character uh, Duncan Hayward, Major Duncan Hayward, who's going after Cora, played by Madeline Stowe. I should also say that. Yeah. Uh, she's great too. I, I mean, in my opinion, and uh, they just kind of show up, whoop some ass, and they're just kind of there. It doesn't feel like there's a reason for them to just be there. In the and the movie doesn't clearly explain until af- a good deal after the fact that they were tracking Huron or, or just rival tribes. And but even that still, it doesn't really give like a big reason why they should care that much or why we should care that they care. Well, okay, this is going to lead into my major problem with Last of the Mohicans. And I'm sure if I, if I was reading the book, it'd be yeah, my major problem with the book. But it feels really racist. <laughs> oh, yeah? It's, yeah, I don't know. It, like, it's, it's practically a Tarzan story set in America. Uh, how, how do you uh, figure? Well, first of all, Nathaniel Hawkeye... Uh, I feel like if he was alive today, he would be the white guy that gets the unnecessary um, feather earring to prove, you know, to prove his, uh, you know, his compassion for the native peoples. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's okay. All of the all of the evil Native Americans are dressed. Uh, they're barely dressed. We we know which ones are the good guys because they wear lots of clothes and they help white people. So are you going into like noble savage territory? Yeah, it's well, man, it's. I mean, this movie is called The Last of the Mohicans, but other than Daniel Day Lewis, the white son, we barely see them. I mean, the the I I was terrified going into this. By the way, like like within thirty minutes, I was I was really dreading that this was going to become a situation where. Daniel Day Lewis was was the last of the Mohicans, like Tom Cruise as the last samurai. I'm very glad to say that that didn't happen. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Well, it doesn't happen. But um, I don't know. It's just well, it's interesting you say that the film's racist because uh, Cook is played by Russell Means, who was a very well known uh, Native American rights activist. Um, and I think it was important to man to cast him in the role. So, are you saying the movie's racist in a patronizing way? It, it well, actually, it's funny you bring up Russell Means. Yeah. Uh, I read an article Russell Means wrote in 1992 about the things that he tried to warn Michael Mann would be perceived as racist. Oh, in really? The film. <laughs> like uh, one of one of which was that he said that uh, his ancestors never wore such small uh, undergarments. Hmm. They, they were never they were never that totally naked all the time, and Michael Mann said, "Yeah, but I saw a dummy in a museum wear it once." And uh, Russell Means had told him, "Yes, but that was in a museum owned by white people." Uh... Um, also, uh, Russell Means really objected to a scene um, in the film, yeah, uh, in which uh, the the two girls, Cora and Alice, are taken to the uh, to the Huron village. Yeah, towards the end of the movie. To be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Um, and according to Russell Means, and this is these these are his words, the, the the feeling of that scene to him was that 
he compared it to like movies from the 20s and 30s where they'd show like savage savage african tribal villages <laughs> yeah where there's just like bloodthirsty people screaming and bringing people to like a king sitting on a throne uh, so you're saying it's like a case of uh, oriental orientalism sure well and, and russell means point of it was that like that 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 just that scene felt so unnatural to him you know based on his experience and based on his knowledge of his ancestors and he said that you know it was a matter of like how hollywood can't get away with that with africa anymore because they because africa is seen as a more autonomous independent place and because you know and because um like like African rights are you know are considered much more important in America America at least in his opinion than Native American rights. So Native Americans point. can still be mistreated on film, and he said that he very much went up to Michael Mann and said you know like this isn't right. This and Michael Mann was like don't worry about that. You leave the storytelling to me. <laughs> well, knowing Michael Mann's uh, record, he probably did say stuff like that. <laughs> Sure. Uh, although, you know, I'm going to give some credit where it's due to uh, to Daniel Day-Lewis, because apparently yeah. uh, there was also a, a situation on the film where, where the um, all the all the extras, all the Native American extras were uh, filming under really horrible conditions. Uh, they were they were pretty much put in like what was described as like like a hut or a bunker that was really overheated while it was filming and <laughs> um, they, they weren't getting paid very well. So they all went on strike and Daniel Day Lewis picketed with them until uh, they, they, they got their demand. Oh, right. And, and Russell means praised, praised him for that. Yeah. Does Russell means even like this movie? Uh, he did. He, he liked this movie because he said that, you know, he, he felt like he, he, he was in it because he felt like it was important for people to see uh, native American faces. Hmm. In film, um, he said, you know, he talked about how he'd grown up under the era of cowboy and Indian movies and how, you know, and how the portrayals of that always made it really uncomfortable for him and his brother to go to movie theaters because they'd be attacked by kids after the movies ended. Oh, Lord. Well, I mean, um, even a great movie like The Searchers, mm-hmm. the well, the main right. uh, Native American adversary is like a white guy. Yeah. And it's about how him stealing the white women and everything. So. Right and 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 like the there's that off there's that sort of awful subtext of like them worrying that they're gonna have half breed children. Mm-hmm. It's, I, but I mean in that case though I mean the character that John Wayne plays is supposed to be heroic because he's John Wayne but he's also a bla- he's also a blatantly racist monster. So I mean, I mean it's still a good movie and uh, yeah it, it's it's you have to look at it from the time it came. Oh sure, the mindset sure. No. people had, you know. So you exactly, can't but just completely say a movie's invalid. That's kind of my problem with this movie, though. Like, I accept that movie for what it is because it's from the fifties. Yeah. I have a little more difficulty accepting some of the some of the complaints here because it's from nineteen ninety two. Yeah. Well, Michael Mann did say <laughs> the very first movie he ever saw was the nineteen thirty six movie version of this book with um, Randolph Scott. In fact, he like he, he likes that movie so much that he credits it as an inspiration next to the book. Yeah, uh, Randolph Scott, who was in uh, one of my favorite Peck and Paw pictures, Ride the High Country, a movie <laughs> he thought was so good that he had to retire after the fact. But uh, maybe that's useless trivia. I don't know. Future episode. Uh, it, and that movie is very much like um, the old 
uh, Last of the Mohicans is very much like a, a serial, like a Saturday morning matinee serial. And I think that's the energy he was trying to recapture with this one. Oh, sure. S- same with, um, uh, under similar circumstances, you can look at Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And mm-hmm. that has sort of a, a very racist portrayal of Indians. <laughs> yes, it does. But I, it's entertaining as hell. But Spielberg but it, and Lucas say, you know, we were just imitating, you know, more of the same serials we grew up on. Sure. And this is the yeah. Oriental Orientalism that went along with it. Take it or right. leave it. You go back to the pulp roots and all that. Yeah, I'm not trying uh, to like to say racism's okay. I'm not trying to say. Well, no, no, no. But I, okay, I, I guess I'll get to my point. Yeah. Um, what's interesting to me, uh, and and sort of why I why I sort of have a fe- that feeling I do about where I could totally see the racism complaints about this movie uh, is they excised two plot points. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, one of which is that the book focused a lot more on uh, Native American life. Whereas they are not really the focus of this movie. I mean, it's it's very much on the love story between you know Hawkeye and Korra, and of course that sells. But there's also a lot of scenes of like English and French people just kind of talking about their war well, and their. The movie has these this French general who seems to be an okay guy. He's helping out Magua get his revenge on uh, uh, Colonel Monroe. And then all of a sudden he gives Magua permission to massacre men, women, and children. Yes. So like, I, he's actually a character who's very underdeveloped. Like, he seems okay. Well, he's actually a little bit sinister at first, that's true. Because they, there's that odd scene where it has what I'm guessing is like um, Native American children who are like uh, in a mission or something because like a guy with like a cross mm-hmm. showing them around. So the the other the other plot omission and it's I don't know I think it would have made for a more interesting story yeah. is that in the in the novel uh Cora is mixed race. Oh I I read that she's uh, she's half black, right? Yeah, uh, she, uh, she's at least a quarter black. Yeah. Uh, her mother her mother was half black. Um but that is considered like she's she's light-skinned enough that it's 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 not supposed to be like something that people can immediately tell. But uh, she and Duncan are involved in the novel too, right? Yes, yes. Well, but when he finds out from her father about about you know what they refer to as her taint, as as being you know of, of her of her uh, heritage, he's much less interested in her. Yeah. He he suddenly turns his attentions to her sister because she is pure. She's pure white. Oh, Alice is pure white. Alice is pure white, and Cora considers herself as less than Alice. Because because of her, you know, because of the fact that she's mixed, uh, which sort of makes I don't know, which which to me would sort of make the uh, the relationship between um, Hawkeye and Korra more interesting, because then you know there's the suggestion that they're both kind of outsiders. All right, but uh, but that's you know she's completely whitewashed in the movie. She's just a white British girl, and she turns down her suitor because she just doesn't want him. Well, here's the deal, and this goes along with mm-hmm. the fact that Cora and Hawkeye have a love interest. Um, it's it's movies. It's like I I keep thinking like Michael Mann wanted to sell this movie maybe to Fox as you know well we'll have this love triangle we'll have a really hot lead actor in Daniel Day Lewis ladies will dig him. I mean, Daniel Day-Lewis also had won an Oscar two years before that for My Left Foot. Yeah, My Left Foot. Um, and so we'll develop like this love triangle, and that'll be kind of you know mm-hmm. the centerpiece of the film. 
which oh, yeah. drives I, a lot of the action. I understand that too. I mean, you, it's it's really hard to pitch a hey, let's make a movie about the French and Indian War. <laughs> yeah, it, and uh, you know, this novel that's already been adapted like ten times in movies. <laughs> I think there's a silent version. I think the most recent one up until this one was from the seventies. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on that. Yeah. Um, but that's the deal. Uh, the best talking about things I like with the movie. A little change gears. Well, well, not yet, not yet. I, I just want to say, like, I I understand the love story's presence. Yeah. I, I get that you know that that isn't that is you know an attractor that's meant to appeal to you know to a wider audience than might go see a movie about Last of the Mohicans. Um, I just I don't know. I I think I think if that if that subplot had stayed in place, it would have made it would have made her a little more interesting to me mm-hmm. because as it is. She doesn't really have a personality. She's just the pretty British girl that's caught in the middle of this that just happens to catch his eye. Like, like in the, in the book, they make the point that he respects her strength and he and he sort of has an understanding of the fact that you know she's that of, you know of of her of her mixed heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a romance there, but like that, I think that respect built on both feeling like outsiders, you know, is uh, I think that's a little more interesting than just. Oh, I, I, I fancy you because you're a pretty uh, raven-haired girl that I just happened to catch a you know glimpse of. Huh. Well, um, like I said, uh, the movie was trimmed down significantly. Oh, sure. Um, Uncas and Alice, their relationship is developed much better, and it would have made you know what happens to Uncas at the end and Alice much more mm-hmm. potent. And that's a great scene, which I'll get to later. Um, hey. Apparently, too, the the actress that played Alice said that her 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 uh, scenes were significantly cut from the movie. Yeah, she She's said most of them it. were missing, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's also with the the Cameron family that they mm-hmm. meet up with uh, early in the movie at, at the cabin, and they eventually find murdered, kind of like uh, Luke Skywalker with his aunt and uncle. Very actually, almost exactly same scene, and. Uh, you don't. It doesn't have as big of an emotional pull, and it seems a little heavy-handed because of the music playing. Yeah, Daniel Day Lewis just knocks out of the park. The way he acts, though, is like these weren't strangers, and they lay as they stay. I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just could have been stronger, and this movie probably would have benefited from this three-hour version, which we'll probably never see. Nope. Um. It it would have made for you know just a, a stronger overall story, and I can see how the Fox people are like no one's gonna people are gonna see how long this is. Yeah, like we just saw Dance of Wolves, you know, a year or two before this, which was the other movie uh, Russell Means had mentioned in the article he'd written he, that he was also in. Yeah, but he but he said that he felt he felt like uh, Last of the Mohicans was a step in a better direction. Because Dances with the Wolves is much more about the the, uh, the Kevin Costner character. Uh, yeah. But speaking of last, I mean, uh, Dances with Wolves, mm-hmm. um, Wes Studi's in that movie also. Wes Studi yes. is the bad guy Magua, and I think he is dynamite in this role. I think he's the most interesting character. He's the most developed. Also, uh, the character of Duncan, I think, is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but Magua in particular is the bad guy. He's got a great reason to hate Colonel Monroe. Yes. 
And he has, well, it's actually kind of convoluted. He says that uh, Monroe was in charge of Native Americans who enslaved West Studi, caused him to lose his wife, his livelihood, everything. And so that he's sworn vengeance against Monroe and his daughters. He, re- he refers to Monroe as the gray hair. The gray hair, yeah. Oh, man. And uh, he speaks in the third person. Yeah, he's, he's, uh, he talks like The Rock. Or uh, Jimmy from Seinfeld. I don't know if any, hopefully people will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the Jimmy. Um, he's, he's this badass warrior. Um, he's, when the gray hair is dead, Magua will eat his heart. Before he dies, Magua will put his children into the knife so the gray hair will know his seed is wiped out forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's, he says a lot of lines like that. Yeah. Um, but he, he makes just for just an excellent presence. Uh, he's, in the, he's also in Heat. He has a much smaller role in that one. He's like one of uh, Al Pacino's deputies or, gotcha. or so fellow detectives. A, yeah. So he's a he's a Michael Mann favorite. And, and at least those two movies. Um, I hope I don't know if he's been in more. Uh, I just know he's been in, in at least those two. Mm-hmm. And in the case of you know Heat, he didn't. You know, it's not a movie like you. You look at an actor like Wes Studi, and they always want him for like whatever like Native American movie. Like he was in the New World, and. <laughs> Well, uh, really, a lot of these, a lot of the Native American actors in this, I mean, Russell Means, uh, also, oh, what is his name? Eric Schwieg? Eric Schwieg, yeah. I mean, Eric Schwieg is mainly known for being in this movie, but yeah. he, but he, I mean, he went on to do a lot of, you know, parts in he, movies like this. He played Injun Joe in the Tom Sawyer movie from the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. And I think they... Which one? Which one? Tom and Huck? I think, was it Tom and Huck? It might have been that one. It, I, I think they changed his name to Crazy Joe. Um, well, I, just like I, just like I'm sure they didn't say Jim's full name. Yeah. Yeah, Tom and Hockey plays Injun Joe on that one. All right. Well, I, but uh, I guess to get back to your point about um, West Studi's character Magua, uh, West Studi has a really interesting face. It's Mm-hmm. It's really weathered and pockmarked, and I mean, he's got character. It lo- yeah, it looks like he's been through some stuff. He's the kind of guy Sergio Leone would have cast in something. Or, Sergio Leone loved faces. So, so did Peckinpah. You know, look at a movie like The Wild Bunch. No one in that movie's handsome. I mean, maybe yeah. maybe Bill Holden was before then, but he's pretty rough and grizzled by the time he's in that one. And uh, I think he. West Studi would have found a nice home in Peckinpah had Peckinpah not drank himself to death and done cocaine out the wazoo. But that's mm-hmm. for another day, kids. Um, well, you know, I'll tell you something I liked about this movie. Yeah. Um, I'll give it points. Uh, we brought up that it's filmed in North Carolina. Yeah. Uh, because you know there's still a lot of old growth forest in North Carolina, unlike uh, most of New York, I'd imagine by now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that. It's it's very beautiful. Uh, it it really makes me I don't know. Just it's it feels weird to say nostalgic, but I I always enjoy my road trips to the Carolinas just because there's so much greenery compared to some places. Yeah, like the lower you know Appalachians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's I mean I'm from you know that's kind of the area we're from. Yeah, and I so I don't know. I, I feel very sentimental when I see it on film, and I and it. It's a believable colonial time setting mm-hmm. uh, for a movie. 
Um, and also, you know, I, I really enjoyed uh, the choreography of the um, battle scenes in the forest. There's a uh, there's a pretty there's a pretty big war set piece in the middle of the movie. There are terrific action scenes in this movie. Um, that's one thing that did stick out to me, and that's one reason I suggested this episode in the first place, or this movie for mm-hmm. the episode. Um, Michael Mann, I would like to talk about him for a minute. Sure. Even in his bad movies, like Miami Vice, he has a wonderful knack of just, inner, you know, realism in his violence and his action. But it's not realism in like a bland way or in a Martin Scorsese way, which Martin Scorsese loves to show the horror of real violence, honest violence. Or in a Native American movie that came out before, this black robe. Mm. That's like metal on flesh, just painful, gruesome. I mean, there's some of that in this movie. There's a scalping in this. But... uh, I I recall uh, Roger Ebert's review of this movie where he he mentioned black robe. Yeah. uh, And said that... Like it said exactly the point you made, which was that this was kind of the Saturday matinee version of Black Robe. Oh yeah, there you go. Um, black, yeah, Black Robe, not an action movie. It's a. I saw it for a history class. That was a very interesting and dark movie, but that did have like if a more gritty depiction of like Native American life with uh, through the eyes of a missionary who slowly loses his faith throughout the film. But, but to go back to Michael Mann, um, he he just he makes real action look cool, and we'll we'll talk about Heat someday. Hey Casey, have you seen Heat? Uh, I haven't yet. I know it makes me a terrible person. I know that because I know every time anybody talks about two actors coming together, ironically, yeah. you know, because like, you know everybody was excited because that heats the movie where Pacino and De Niro come together. So anytime two actors come together that people don't really care about coming together, it's like, oh man, this is their heat. This we finally got these two together. Yeah. Uh, so I I know I'm supposed to have seen it, and I know I will see it, and uh, probably for this show I will definitely see yeah. it. There's there's a wonderful yeah um, heat as a an extremely famous bank robbery scene that Christopher Nolan tried to duplicate to some degree in The Dark Knight uh, with Robert De Niro and Val Kilmer and um, Tom Sizemore running down downtown Los Angeles with assault rifles and it's unbelievable. It's totally different from you know a peck and paw shootout or Leone where it's more stylized or, and it's about the cutting. This is about like the it's it's like sleek, it's yeah, like a well, Ferrari, I, I, you know. It's about the realism. You can hear think, and feel the thud of the action. Whereas a Scorsese goes for realism to show the horror of violence, uh, man uses it uses realism to elicit thrills. Yeah, like he revels in it. He loves it. <laughs> um, it's it's thr- he shows you how thrilling real the sound of like a real gunfire sounds. And and that's in heat especially, and that, that's in this picture too with, you know, muskets and long rifles. Yeah, like the the fire erupting, and uh, um, on an even I mean, smaller. I mean, uh, what? Go ahead. Sorry. No, uh, on a on a on a briefer scale, on a more brief scale, um, there's a great shot where they approach the the uh, fortress to go see Colonel Monroe for the first time. And you just hear these guns popping off in the background. You see this great, all this fire erupting. 
I, I can only imagine the, the micromanagement done by Michael Mann to the mm-hmm. annoyance of his uh, pyrotechnics crew. But it paid off. It, it, it looks great. That that right there is just a wonderful example of you know his kind of action. The film never revels on the wounds either, but man, when people get stabbed or hit with a tomahawk to the face, there's like you'll get like this second long glimpse of a really brutal looking wound. Yeah, it reminds me of like the Vi- uh, or uh, the Road Warrior, where that that's a very violent picture, mm-hmm. but it it go it moves along. It doesn't like linger it never on. lingers. Yeah. yeah, and this doesn't linger either. I mean, I I, I want to say there was a scalping in this movie. There is, yeah. Yeah, but it, it doesn't linger on it too long. No, it, it it like it serves its point. You see that just at one scalping, that's it. Um, the part where Magua car he literally does carve out the heart of Monroe. That's right. That's kind of done off camera and suggestively. Like that would be the most. It's kind of the most gruesome act in the picture. And you know he's yeah, but it makes the point. By the way, the. In the no- in the uh, novel, Cora is the one that dies, not Alice. Yeah, and Monroe lives too. Yeah, but they, they but they switched it around. I guess they switched the Cora Alice thing around because they wanted to send people home with a happy ending. Somewhat, I mean. Just, Somewhat, yeah. I mean. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, that's most people who are you know who want it. For most people in the theater, a happy ending is Cora and Daniel Day Lewis together by the end. Yeah. Well, speaking of the end. Yes. This movie has a fantastic ending and it's mm-hmm. an ending that's so damn good i think it, it's like an ending should that should be taught in every film class it is a demonstration of pure cinematic storytelling um the shot selection uh the emotions involved it's all right there it's beautiful the music is wonderful the action is cool um at the end of this move uh, go go ahead oh i was gonna say we're talking about the cliff battle right the cliff battle uh, at this point in the movie, Alice is being led to her uh, death by Magua and his goons. Um, the three Mohicans are going to try to rescue her. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Uncas, who has you know the, the most interest in Alice, kind of leads the way, and he ma- he makes like a preemptive attack. Magua kind of tells his guys through his body language, you know, just kind of stand down. I got this, guys. He fights Uncas, and he's, he's a superior warrior, and he just cuts his belly open. He looks down, Uncas looks down at himself, and he tries again, and Magua just butchers him. Yeah. And then Alice kind of backs away, and she looks at a cliff, and then she looks back at uh, Magua, and it's just a beautiful shot and just the emotions just right there and uh west duty lifts up his hand to offer it to her and it's so perfect because it's covered in blood her you know supposed boyfriend's <laughs> blood yes um just that's that's a really good moment that's just in a great perfect example it's so damn good of just great cinematic storytelling and then you know hawk hawkeye and uh Chingach cook show up massacre the guys and just great shot selection. It's, it's, the action in the movie is not about like the coolest angles, like you know, thing like Sergio Leone. He would have like uh, <laughs> more. Uh, ob- not I would say obvious, but more like 
pronounced angles. He's, he likes if, those vanishing points, you know? Well, if it was Sergio Leone, we, we would have had them circle each other on the cliff for eight minutes. Before. <laughs> yeah, but it would have been great. But it, it would have been beautiful. Yeah, but yeah. it would have been totally different, though. Uh, and Chingach Cook and Magua have a great... It's a, it's, it's a short, but it's a great showdown. Because it, it crescendos with the music that's playing with it. I just love it. And the, and the scenery, like you mentioned earlier... Is just beautiful. Oh, that that cliff is breathtaking. Yeah, it's beautiful. Um, and oh man, I I could go on and on about just that end sequence. And it ends with please, a well, please do, please do. It it ends with a a poignant speech by Chingachgook. Yes. And in the theatrical cut, the very last words he says are the last we are the last Mohicans. Um. The director's cut, he has like a whole lengthy speech about Native American rights. Yes. And in, uh, I think, the definitive cut, they trimmed it down a little bit of that speech. But he doesn't end by saying the last of the Mohicans. Well, he, uh, one of the one of the uh, versions of the line, uh, he he says, um, you know, Wel- welcome him and let him take his place at the council of fire of my people. He is Uncas, my son. Tell them to be patient and ask deaths for, fe- deaths for speed, for they are all there but one. I, Chingachgook, last of the Mohicans. So, last of the Mohicans now refers to Chingachgook, which completely alleviated my fear <laughs> of this being the last samurai situation with Tom Cruise. I never I, saw the last samurai for that reason. Oh man, it's it, it's awful. Uh, it's another movie I would I, I don't know I would talk about Last Samurai on the show to skewer it, but literally every everyone but Tom Cruise dies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I forget if he dies or not, but I mean literally by the end of the movie he is the only samurai because they've shot all the other samurai with machine guns. Mm. So like all the all the Japanese people have died, and Tom Cruise represents their heritage and their ways because he's wearing their armor and holding a sword. <laughs> so I was I was petrified that you know like. Chingachgook was going to turn to Daniel Day-Lewis and go, "You are the last of the Mohicans." <laughs> <laughs> I did not want that to happen because that, that would I would have been done. Maybe Daniel Day-Lewis got into a fight with Michael Mann. He's like, "No, he's the last of the Mohicans, Michael, not me." Yeah, maybe that's part of the picketing. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I do know. I mean, we t- you talked about the meticulousness of Michael Mann, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, you know his his reputation as being a notoriously uh, nitpicky, uh, micromanaging director, and I, I know for a fact, you know, one of the big things uh, that he promoted this movie with was that they they made all of the uh, items that they used in the old ways that they were made. Like you know, if you saw if you saw a Native American style bow, yeah. the production designer had to make it the way the Native Americans used to make it, and like that. They they really rolled out the advertising for this movie using all that like you know he did all these things the authentic way which is kind of like an old school way of promoting a movie that's something like D W Griffiths would have done or something, <laughs> uh, but I think he I think you know man kind of meets his match with somebody who is as method as Daniel Day Lewis. Uh, Daniel Day, uh, Daniel Day Lewis mentioned that to prepare for this role, he lived off the land for like three. Oh months. yeah, like he went. Every, <laughs> he carried his musket with him everywhere, and he like went to the bathroom with it, slept he, in the woods. And, yeah, and he yeah he insisted on hunting and fishing for his own food for a while. Like yeah, it's, like that. It's cl- he does classic he does, Daniel Day Lewis. 
Yeah, he doesn't take on any role without doing some drastic thing like that to get himself in the part. Or with my left foot, he would sign autographs with his left foot. <laughs> Although he, uh, Daniel Lewis allegedly said uh, he was overheard somewhere while hanging out with the extras that he had quit smoking, but that making this damn movie was going to make him take it back up again. <laughs> Michael Mann how... does that to you. Yeah, it's because of how how uh, obsessive and <laughs> micromanaging uh, Michael Mann is. Michael Mann doesn't do less than 20 takes. Ever. Th- uh, fewer than 20 takes. He doesn't do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's... Uh, that's he, he's always he's, gone over always, budget. Yeah, he has to say he's wildly over budget all the time. Mm-hmm. That's why I think he's had trouble getting a movie made since Public Enemies. It didn't make a lot of money. It was bad, and it probably went. I, actually, I'm pretty sure it went over budget too. Whereas Last of the Mohicans was a was a critical and financial success in its time. Yeah, I mean, I do like the film overall. Um, I loved it when I was you know younger. But, you know, like I said, just, you know, reassessing it, watching it straight through for the first time in over 10 years, it's just made certain things stick out to me. Let me ask you this. things, yeah. Did you get a sense of what the uh, French and Indian War was about from this movie? Not really. I, I have no sense of the history of the period or what was going on. I mean, that, that's not the point, though. I, I know it's not the point, but man, if you if you go to see a movie about the Revolutionary War, you better believe they're going to drop something about taxation or the British or liberty. Like, that, that line's going to be thrown in somewhere. I have no idea why they're fighting. I, if I, I, this, outside of historical context, I, I would already bring to it. Actually, this movie, speaking of, you know, that, the, the Revolutionary War, I think the movie does more effort to lay the seeds of the American Revolution and the dialogue than it mm-hmm. does with the you know the circumstances of the French and Indian War. Yeah. Like I, the dissenting maybe... colonists, they keep mentioning that. Why would they listen to the British crown? Something Duncan says. Yeah. yeah. And maybe you know they, they know that the audience is going to be more familiar with that conflict, but I it's something I would have liked to have seen. Just give me give me a little more historical context about this period because I don't know a lot about that, you know, about that conflict. I haven't, you know, I haven't done enough of my own research and that might be my own ignorance, but the the film certainly didn't give me any any context that I, you know, that really helped. Mm-hmm. I I think I had a teacher in like middle school who showed us part of this movie. It's like just because when it takes place and it was a cool movie. And I, th- I think a lot of the kids were bored because it was like a scene with just a bunch of British soldiers talking and Hawkeye just kind of, you know, hanging out with his musket. Yeah, he's like I said, he to me, Daniel Day Lewis is the guy that now would have a uh, feather earring yeah. and uh, and like would decorate his house full of Native American art. Mm. <laughs> yeah, uh, can't wait for the, the updated, gritty <laughs> reboot CW series. Less the movie. It'll be, it'll be called Long Rifle. Long Rifle. God, God. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, so I, I guess overall, is this a do you do you recommend this movie? I do recommend this movie. I do. I think the emotions are there. Um, especially by the end of the movie, I think it's well worth your time. You know, it's it's not Michael Mann's best picture, like I had originally thought. That that goes to Heat. Heat's it's wonderful. Um, not without its own problems, 
but extremely minor by comparison. But definitely, if you have not watched this movie on Netflix, and if we haven't ruined it for you too much, I recommend it. Okay. Um, I don't. I'm I'm not going to actively discourage anybody from seeing it. I, I think you've made some fine points about the uh, the technical achievements of this film, and I think that there's I think there you know there's there's plenty. Uh, but you you talked about how this is you know th- there's great examples of cinematic storytelling, but I don't feel like there are great examples of just storytelling. Um, it's yeah, like I said, it's not all strung together as nicely as you know you would think. Mm-hmm. I think there's some good performances here, uh, but I'm not I'm not completely engaged in what the movie is giving me. Uh, but I but there's there's some great images, uh, there's some great moments, but I it just doesn't do it for me. And like I said, I'm not I don't hate it. I'm not going to actively discourage anybody from seeing it. But for me, it's a not recommend. I just I couldn't I couldn't get too into it. I you know I had some I had some issues with uh, you know. Uh, the way the Native American culture was displayed. Uh, it's mm. not its not blatantly racist, but it's, you know, it's definitely there. It's much there. better than The Searchers in that regard, you know. Oh, sure, sure. But the Searchers uh, yeah. is a better movie, so... Yeah, right. <laughs> There's the trouble, isn't yeah, there? That's the, the troubling paradox, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, like, you know, I, and I feel bad about that, because I'm sure in a future episode I'm going to recommend The Searchers, but I... So... Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't save it so much, but the searchers engaged me in a way and it's a product of its unfortunate time. And it's, I don't know. There's, uh, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of baggage we'll discuss when we get to the searchers, which we definitely will. Absolutely. Um, but this movie, this movie, I have my issues with this movie and it still doesn't engage me. And like I said, that, that a lot of that might go back to Fenimore Cooper's novel. Um, but <laughs> I, Twain I, fanboy. <laughs> I am though. I, I do love me some Twain. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is just this is not a movie I would tell you to go out and see. But you know, it's it is on Netflix. You can see it anytime you'd like. And yeah. you know, I defer to Bert. Yeah. So uh, we are now entering to the month of December, and that is mo- uh, a month saturated with Christmas material. Casey and I thought to sort of shake things up, and we're going to do a bit of a Scandinavian theme. Mm-hmm. For the next well, actually, let me say I'm looking at my window right now, and it is snowing. Yes. So that I think that's perfect for talking about what we we decided to do this year. Um, because as you said, we're we're going a little different. Uh, we thought about for a while, you know, we we, we were pitching each other um, December movies, yeah. you know, and Christmas movies, and we thought, oh, well, we can do Die Hard, or we can do Gremlins, you know, we can do or you know, we can do all the classics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we kind of decided, like, we're trying to think of this show on a long-term basis. I mean, we don't, we don't want to cover all the classics right away because we want to give our, we, want to, we want to give ourselves things to do a year from now, two years from now. We got to you know? have the good and the bad. That's right. That's right. And uh, you know, and we, and we don't want to necessarily always talk about things that you already know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I mean, there's a, there's a lot of opinions out there about these movies, and we'll be we'll you know we'll gladly give our own at some point. Uh, but yeah, we decided to do something a little a little unusual and a little it's still in keeping with the holidays, but more in keeping with winter, I think. Yeah. So turn on your Vivaldi because we're doing Troll Hunter from Sweden. It is on Netflix Instant. It is a found footage. What is it? A fantasy monster hunting? I, I don't know. They, 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 they literally hunt trolls. Yeah. So, I have. I've and, never seen it. 
And then the uh, the week after that, we are going to do a really strange movie from Finland. Uh, it's a Christmas movie called Rare Exports, and it is about uh, a child who encounters the truth of the Santa legend, which is uh, that Santas are really naked, uh, feral old elf men who live out in the wilderness and are dangerous to get near. Because why not? And then we're doing something uh, really, I don't know, uh, I guess I would, I want to say special because we haven't really done anything like it since our summer movie roundup. Uh, But we have decided, um, since the new year will then be approaching, that we're going to follow those two episodes up with uh, two separate episodes in which we will get tell you our top 10 action movies and our top 10 horror movies of the last 13 years. Since 2000, yeah. Since 2000. Because, I mean, the show's brand new. Had we started this in like 2010, it would have definitely done like the best of the decade. So we, we felt like it was a good idea to get in on, you know, just talking about what we think is the best, you know, of the last, well, the last, and, you last 13 know, years. Yeah. The new millennium. Th- 13 years is incredibly appropriate for horror. Maybe not, maybe a little less so for action, yeah. but hey, we're getting in there, man. We, we haven't done a lot of list episodes for the same reason that we're not doing classics. We don't want to kind of blow all the all the possible list episodes we could do right away. Yeah. Well, but we figure it's time for those well, two. Well, have you heard the news, though? Speaking of 13, New <laughs> Friday the 13th has been announced. Really? It's getting released on a Friday the 13th in 2015. Is it still under Platinum Dunes? I believe so. They missed a big opportunity to do it this year. This is yeah. it being 2013 and all. They could have released it, it, it in March. Well, it, it were, or even in September. I mean, they were. Uh, they, that's when they put out the huge series retrospective box set. Yeah. That that's I, they they missed it, you know. But that's just, I'm just saying that for all you fans out there. I didn't dislike the remake. That might be a controversial opinion. I don't hate it either. As a it's, Friday the Thirteenth movie, it works. As a Friday the Thirteenth movie, it works, and it's it's definitely the best out of the Michael Bay era horror remakes. Yeah, but that's for another day, kids. So yeah, but so hey, uh, next week, make sure you've watched Troll Hunter if you can. It's on Netflix Instant. So is Rare Exports if you want to watch. Keep up with us. Yeah, give yourselves a double feature. As always, I am Burton Cody, and I'm Casey Mitchum. Stay bloody, my friends. Just dropped in to see how you boys is doing. Nature, Scout. You sure ain't no damn militia.